0: Welcome to Louisiana Lefty, a podcast about politics and community in Louisiana, where we make the case that the health of the state requires a strong progressive movement fueled by the critical work of organizing on the ground. Our goal is to democratize information, demystify party politics, and empower you to join the mission because victory for Louisiana requires you. I'm your host, Linda Woolard. This week we continue our two-part conversation with Amelie Breton, who's been a fundraiser, a finance director, and a development director raising money for awesome causes. If you missed last week's episode, it's worth a listen in order to hear some of the general theories of how to effectively ask for donations. On this episode, we'll discuss in more detail how critical it is for candidates, campaign staff, and anyone who relies on contributions to have the discipline to create a finance plan, draft a potential donor list, set up fundraising call time, as well as develop a strong process for engaging and thanking donors. We also continue to drive home the idea that what leads to success in fundraising is building relationships. As always, check out the podcast notes for more information. But for now, Amelie and I jump right back into our conversation. For a new candidate, should a finance director be their first hire?
1: So that is often the case, um, and I don't think it's necessarily a—it's not a bad strategy um, across the board. But I think what you're what some what sometimes competes with that is like I want the strategist type person, and I think in an ideal scenario, you have somebody who can offer you strategy, including a very specific you know, finance strategy, and they're going to start doing, they're going to, to start that work. Um, so if you have a strategist who's like, yeah, I could tell you what you're supposed to do with your money, but I'm not willing to make calls and I'm not willing to set up meetings for you and things like that. And they're going to be your first hire, then they're not going to, they're not going to be part of raising the funds that are needed to hire everybody else. So you need somebody who is going to be able to deliver you, not just strategy, but actual, some actual fundraising work um there's a lot of different ways you can structure a campaign too so there's different consultancies and things like that but at first like staff hire should be needs to be somebody who can help you bring in revenue because then that's what leads you to everybody else um but if you can marry that with strategy that's that's a ticket and then the second hire should be your field person because i mean obviously we, uh, linda is a, an amazing field organizer and strategist and coalition builder. But seriously, you know, those two things in combination are really, that's where magic happens. If you have a good field strategy, a good GOTV strategy, and, and somebody who's going to help you get the, the money you need to go implement all those things, that's a solid, that's a solid start.
0: <laughs> I endorse that message. <laughs> so we can't talk about fundraising without talking about call time. So for yes. folks, folks who don't know what call time is, explain that.
1: So um it, it often becomes like the dreaded menace or something. And I I think that is totally avoidable. Um the call time is you have a candidate, and I will say right now, people who have been members of Congress for years, they do call time. Um so no one's above it. Uh presidential candidates do call call time. No one is above call time. No this is a thing what, that everybody what has to it? do. What is it? So yes. So um You're basically, your finance uh, team is going to put together a list of call sheets for you and you're going to sit there and call through them. And this is the cold calling part for a candidate. Um, However, it's not always technically cold calling, but you're just going to call through. You are going to try to make asks in those phone calls.
0: So call time is sitting down and making fundraising calls. Yes. How important is call time?
1: It is critical. This is what I was saying is everybody from... The biggest campaign you can run to, I have worked on a tax assessor and personally seen a tax assessor candidate do call time. <laughs> Everyone needs to do it. Um, you know, I've said in other places, there's a lot of different ways that campaign can raise funds, you know, online strategies, digital things. And a lot of times I've heard a lot of candidates say like, well, I don't, we can just do this online or why don't we just push out another ad for something or whatever. And you just have to look them square in the face and say, no, Because that means you're leaving this money out there and not raising this. You can't push all the other goals off on other revenue streams. You just got to sit down and do it because it's going to bring in vital funding for your campaign.
0: And it costs nothing.
1: And it costs nothing except for a cell phone plan, which you already have.
0: (laughs) Well, and you've also said that it's not just about fundraising. Mm -hmm. Part of that relationship building through call time, it's about getting your name out there.
1: Yes. Yes, so um, that, thank you for, for reminding me about that piece because um, the second half of that conversation with the candidate who doesn't want to do call time after saying presidents do call time, everybody does call time <laughs> and that you can't push your, your goals off on other parts of your, your team or your plan is that call time delivers really valuable things in addition to the revenue you'll raise. Um, you, even the un, unsuccessful conversations, even the voicemails, you leave, you're getting your name out there on a personal level. And so I think a lot of people really focus on the, Oh, the person who doesn't want a phone call from me or whatever. Don't worry about that. You're going to have to call through a lot of people to magically call somebody you're, you know, unscheduled at the right time. That's just life. People are busy. Right. Um, so don't get hung up on that part. Leave a nice message and move on to the next call. And once you get someone on the phone, you have multiple objectives with them. You want to define your narrative to them. You want to, it's a great, great way to get experience refining your stump speech and things like that. You're going to be awkward the first couple of times and that's per- perfectly fine. If you're you know, a first-time candidate, that is absolute, give yourself that space. You're going to wind up being awkward. You can be cute about it or something. You'll be fine. Um, and then, but again, you're, so you have somebody say they do wanna donate or they're uncertain about donating to your campaign, but you can still talk to them about who their networks are and would they wanna to come to a coffee or would they wanna to come to the coffee you have scheduled? And then they do, and they wanna now host their own coffee for you and introduce you to their network and, and these kinds of things. There are people out there who, if they connect with what it is that you're trying to do and the change that you're talking about making, they're gonna to wanna to, to to do something to help that happen.
0: So, okay. So let's just real quick. I'm going to go over. So it's a critical source of revenue. It's the cheapest way mm-hmm. to fundraise. It's also about practicing your story and your stump speech with people. And if they don't give you money, it's still a way to find out what else someone might be willing to yes. donate to your campaign. So when you were at the DCCC, what was a standard call time for a congressional candidate back then? I know it may have changed maybe more now. So for um, a
1: congressional candidate, I think um, as best memory serves, it was something around two hours a day. And what you wanted to do was schedule daily call time, whatever the number of hours actually are going to be the right fit for you, because then it's a campaign. As we all know, things are going to change fast and often. And so if you have this stuff set aside and then you're able to go run over to the press conference that just got set up, someone's invited you to participate in, that would be great opportunity because you've done your, all these other hours of call time all week, or you have it set up for the rest of the week. So hit it when you can, because you know something's actually going to supersede that down the road and don't avoid it.
0: And if you're an inexperienced candidate, how many hours a day should they be devoting to call time?
1: For the inexperienced candidate, I think you want to do as much call time as your finance team and or yourself can find calls for. It's not necessarily about a number of hours, but about reaching your goals. So you want to set a a baseline. You're going to do a lot of call time and figure out how much am I on average walking away with when I do my call time. And and then you're taking that and doing daily and weekly tracking, um, you know, to, depending on the race and exactly how much you're, you're raising, you may not need to focus quite as much on dailies, but I still still think it's a good thing to put into practice. But your weekly review of where you are to where you're supposed to be, is gonna tell you what's working. Because on a day to day, you may have a good day, a bad day, whatever. The weekly is really gonna tell you because if you wait to do it monthly, um, this is something where like weekly, monthly, a lot of times can be like, you know, whatever you choose. I'm saying do it weekly. Because when, if you wait longer than that, then you don't have the time to make adjustments to your plan to get you to the right number, right? Like you need to be able to know when it's working and when it's not fast enough to be able to make necessary changes. Um, and I think you know, in addition to that, the other things that you need to consider about how much call time you're scheduling you know, for your, your first campaign or first campaign at a certain level is, are you also allowing enough time between your fundraising for the coalition building and your voter outreach? People need to see you. They need to meet you, especially when you're new, you need to go earn their trust. You need to not like, depending on just like some television campaign and social and digital to make sure that the world knows about you is a bad plan. Especially as a first-time candidate, you're likely to be raising the kind of money that's gonna get you on TV enough for that to be in any way effective. (laughs) TV's really expensive and you have to be on it a lot to get a new thing into people's minds. So knocking doors on that front, organizing front, that's kind of the call time equivalent. It is the cheap, easy way to get your face in front of someone in a meaningful way. Um, so you wanna make sure you're balancing those things. And then of course you need people to call. So you do, that's, you know, when you're asking about the first hire, that's, that's one of the reasons that you want that person to be able to deliver you some, some finance works and finance work product, which is a call
0: list. Let's break those things down. So there's several things there that you talked about. Um, and the first one that you were ju- just talking about, you called Mandy Landry's run for state house, a model campaign. And so when you're Big talking Mandy about, fan. yeah. So when you're talking about um, balancing fundraising and voter outreach and coalition building, you've really talked about her campaign. So did you want to talk a little bit about? Yeah, what makes yeah. No, such it's, a model? it's
1: it is such a good example for what I'm talking about. And and you know, for full disclosure or whatever, I knew Mandy before she ran. And so when she was talking to me about these things and talking to me about how the campaign was going. I was fascinated because there were so many things that, about her campaign that were, you know, people who were traditionally these kind of gold star consultants in, in fundraising in our, our, you know, little piece of the world, were telling her, you can't run in that district. And she was like, nope, actually, I've we've done polling. I have found other polling that says this district um, and, and actually I'm one of her constituents um, and this was specifically about her running as an like you know outwardly gonna talk about a lot being a pro-choice candidate. Um, she's like, no, I can do that. This district actually does want that and all these things and and this is Louisiana so there's a lot of Louisiana consultants say, used to saying like no, don't go there And she didn't listen to it because um, she had that research and she had her plan she knew exactly what she wanted to accomplish. And so I just have all the respect in the world for her that she went forward with it. Cause that's not, it's not always easy. That shouldn't be taken for granted. Um, and she, she put in the time. And when I say the time, I mean so much time. She went knocking doors every day, rain and shine. She had an amazing field person. She had she sat there and made phone calls. She had, you know, personal appeals to people for, for fundraising, but she was doing the same thing on the field level. So when somebody heard about her from another candidate, you know, the, the negative that they're trying to say about Mandy, okay, well, even if they weren't like, Mandy wasn't their most favorite candidate of all time, like I met her. That's not what she told me. Like she told me this. I know that's not true. So what, the way she did her campaign you've got somebody who's knocking on doors and meeting people and introducing themselves they are defining themselves as a candidate to that person first and in a way that's much more real and much more cemented because it's it's this one-on-one interaction and then somebody comes in and wants to bomb some campaign with a bunch of money and tv ads you've done that de- defining work you've done that thing where it's I'm looking you in the eye and telling you this is who I am. It's really hard for somebody to come along with a TV ad that is going to tell somebody their personal experience is wrong. You know, we hold our personal experience really close, right? And so when you are able to do that first on a one-on-one level, you can spend a ton of money on TV trying to convince people otherwise, but they're like, nah, I met that girl. I don't believe you. You're, you're full of it. And we've all seen TV ads where we're like, you are... That's not true. You know, like we've all had that experience.
0: So it's interesting to me because what you've really kind of laid out here in the fundraising conversation is that those same conversations that you have on the doors that are introducing mm-hmm. you to your voters are the same conversations you have on the phones when you're talking to your donors. They're really yeah. the same, same, same.
1: Yeah. And I think um, there might be some people in the world who would feel a certain way about what I'm going to say, but I also don't think there's any problem with if you're having a good conversation on the door saying, I hope you consider giving. That should be something you're saying, but sometimes feel people are like, fundraisers back off, so I respect that.
0: <laughs> well, I, look, I will say for me as an organizer, and this isn't exactly mm-hmm. similar to what you're saying, but as an organizer, I really did kind of try to put a wall up between fundraising and organizing mm-hmm. only because I was asking people to donate time And I felt like it was a bit of a big ask to say, I would like your time and I would like your money. The candidates at the door
1: and having a good conversation with someone, there should be nothing to prevent them to say, and that's a soft ask, right? Just hope you consider contributing to my campaign as well. I'm so happy to have earned your vote or whatever if they've they've said something like that.
0: Totally fair. Mm -hmm. And the other piece is I think that it is just, same as you've said on those fundraising mm-hmm. calls. It may not be money they're willing to give, but there may be something else. Mm-hmm. So I think it is that exactly, li- exactly. That menu of options. Could you give right. you gotta Could look you at
1: time? You have to approach people. This is the funny thing about fundraising and probably all the facets of campaigning, my experiencing fundraising is that like you have all this time and experience and all these different tools and strategies. And it all comes back down to like, just reminding yourself, you've got to treat people like a whole person, you know? Like it's almost like you come in and you're trying to learn all of the, the technical skills. And then, and then you have to come back around to just kind of those people basics. And if you talk to someone like they're a dollar sign or an ATM, it's not gonna go well. If you talk to somebody like you better vote for me, why wouldn't you?
0: So I think it's really important to underscore what I've heard you say several times. I've heard you say it in different ways today. I've mm-hmm. heard you say it in the past that it, it has to be part of your thinking as the candidate or the campaign mm-hmm. staff, that you're not just asking people yeah. for money or time for you as a person. You're asking them to donate, invest in a bigger shared value. Right. Right. Like your, and think, your shared values, your shared beliefs.
1: Yeah. I, I, I really do think that, and especially when you're thinking of somebody, you know, somebody who is considering being a first-time candidate, you get wrapped up in like, oh, now I'm asking them to give to me, or I'm putting my personal relationship out there. And oh my gosh, what if they want to say no? So what if they say no? For one, that's one thing we all have to get comfortable with is Somebody's going to say no to you, and that's fine. Um, and two, the more important piece is if you're asking that, if you're just reading out your bio, I went to a good college and I have this impressive career, and da 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 da, and that's why I should be a good candidate for Congress. Like, no, nope, you're not going to get a lot of bites. Like, you know, hopefully your mother will want to give to you because she's proud of you, right? But the even the person who's known you a long time, if they're not hearing from you, this is why on a personal level and as a community and as a, you know, as a city, or if you're running for something statewide or a country, whatever, I want, I am putting out my name. I'm risking all this by putting out my name and putting my name on billboards and flyers and TV ads and all these things, because I think I can make this change. And I need your investment to help me to get there. And here's the eight reasons, you know, with me, it's usually 18 reasons. It's recommended like, you know, a good three to five things that people can actually remember. (laughs) But, uh, you know, you want to give them, this is why I care about this and this is why I can get it done. You know, I have a plan. Um, I care about it and I have a plan.
0: Okay, so speaking of plans, let's talk about Mm -hmm. building a fundraising plan.
1: Yes, yeah. So I think we talked about a lot of these pieces um, here and there, but, you know, when you're asking about who do you want as your first hire, what you need from day one is this is how much money it's going to cost for me to run this race. And you've got to take into account, um, you know, your staff pieces, your media buys, and then, you know, um, computer, Wi-Fi, all the things in between, right? (laughs) Okay. How am I going to go get this revenue? And so you're going to take a certain chunk of that money and say, find, and I, I really do believe, you know, direct ma- any kind of mass, mass appeal stuff, your direct marketing, if it's mail, email, whatever, that's the thing to put your money in a consultant for. This is not exactly part of your question, but there's going to be a lot of consultant appeals across the board, but that mass volume of work, that's where they've tested okay. stuff eight times. That's where it becomes really valuable, right? Um, so you'll you'll wanna consider that if you can. And then um, and so then building a budget. out so you're yeah, setting, you Right. Your budget. And so it's like, you know, people are very familiar with budgets on how you're gonna spend your money. This is a budget on how you're going to to raise it. So you say this much is gonna come from a, a direct marketing, you know, these digital kind of platforms, and then you're going through. Um, there's going to be some PAC support that you may be able to get. Now, some people don't want to raise PAC support. And I think that, um, was an a-okay way to go, but obviously that can be part of a plan. Um, and then the individual support, and this is where the lion's share of that individual support is going to come through call time. So especially if you're a first-time candidate, like that's, that's your main way to connect with individuals because you haven't done this before. So, so you, you've set aside, this is how I can raise, uh, this is what we think we can raise through these other channels like the direct marketing. So then you have what's left and you need to go figure out how you're going to find that. And a lot of that for a first-time candidate is going to be through call time. You're going to uh, develop events and, and well, networking things through there. But what you need to do is set up. That's where that daily and weekly tracking comes in because you you don't have a plan based on like, we've raised all this money before. So this is how we're going to go get it again. You're doing this new as in first-time candidate. So you have to go out there and see what's going to work. And that's where that daily, weekly tracking comes so important because here's what we tried and here's what's worked and here's what's happened. And you keep adjusting your plan constantly. A plan is a living thing, should change it because why not dial up the thing that's working?
0: You know? So you'll make an assessment of what your budget needs are for the campaign and then work backwards to fill in Mm -hmm. where all those sources of revenue will come from. Exactly. Okay and then for your call time, you said your finance team or whoever's mm-hmm. working for your campaign needs to build you a list so that you actually have people to call every time you sit down to make calls because you right. without names you can make no calls yeah. how do you <laughs> um, and this is where I think people have to be really willing to do the work and the research mm-hmm. and just invest some time into that but how would someone go about building that list of donors
1: yeah so this is this is where um fundraisers get to not talk for a minute. <laughs> this is when they get to sit down and do, do research. Um, so I think the first thing, anytime you're talking about prospect research is you're you have to be trying to compile information about who has the capacity to give and who has the propensity to give. And, and when you say capacity, obviously that can range. Like I want, we have this supporter and you know, I can't tell if they can give more than five or $10 and put them in appeals that are asking for that, right? You don't want to be asking people for more than you can give. So you're looking for previous donor history. Um, There's kind of two ways. So you're tracking as you want capacity. So you're looking for different donor histories and go through kind of a list of all the places you can find that information. And then as you find good prospects, then you're trying to look for who is likely to give. So I'm an environmental candidate who is, um, you know, focused in giving on those things. So First for the capacity based on like previous giving history. One of the wonderful things about campaign finance disclosure is that the lists are all out there. This is what you were talking about earlier about you popped up on a list because of previous giving, right? Um, So FEC reports, um, that is, you can find on the FEC's website. I'm pretty sure you have to have a subscription to be able to like export this stuff. But in my time, which was a while ago, The political money line was kind of the easiest, uh, most organized information for FEC staff. State reports for Louisiana, that's with your secretary of state. Uh, City reports, I have actually not had to pull that kind of information out in a while, so I can't remember exactly which agency you get that from, Um, but it'll vary city to city and state to state. Um, So sometimes your AG's office will have your campaign stuff, but in Louisiana, it's secretary of state on the state level. Um, and then you want to start looking for, I mean, what you can find in any of these big public disclosure places is a lot of information. So from there, you're not just pulling everybody who's given in my area or whatever. You want to start prioritizing who are candidates who have a similar profile than you, or, you know, I'm running for, uh, in a district and the ca- candidate before me or the member before me actually, you know, we're pretty alike. So one, you want to go get that person's endorsement. <laughs> and then two, you want to figure out who of their donors could you connect with and could you talk to? You're not always staying right in a, in a district line. So um, who else in your state cares about environmental issues and or whatever whatever cause you're working with? And then you're going to wind up calling some people that you just, you got off some list and you straight up don't know. But of course the finance, your finance staff is going to be, doing everything they can to find ones where there are connections. So you need to be telling them, this is who my network is. So they have that information. Um, and then they're gonna find, this is somebody who supported a candidate like you. This is a person who, um, I think when we were talking about this before, I had a, an example person of, this is somebody who is on the board of like three different environmental uh, organizations in, in your area. Like that's an ideal person for you to go talk to because They have multiple, they obviously care about this issue. They have multiple networks that care about environmental issues that would be wanting to hear from a candidate like you. And so you're prioritizing those that have a demonstrated history of giving and information that says, I'm likely to care about you as a candidate because of whatever common interests or common cause.
0: Okay. And then when we're making calls, how do we make them successful? And I just want to say, here because I've already heard some of your answer to this so before you start Mm -hmm. one of the people that I heard from once was Foster Campbell yeah who called and heard my dogs barking in the background and we spent half an hour talking about dogs yep yep which I thought was brilliant because that was a very quick connection to that person yeah Yeah. I thought that was pretty smart
1: that is, that is pretty smart. Um, uh, and so, yeah, so when you're calling folks, yes, you wanna refine some speech. People are busy and they do, you do need to be able to deliver what your message is quickly. But if you get, and, and like you said before, you're gonna get a lot of voicemails and a lot of no answers because people are busy and we all screen our calls and things like that. But you get somebody on the phone and you wanna start, you wanna tell them who you are and be able to do that super quickly then you want to immediately start asking them questions about who they are, or do you have dogs? <laughs> because now that I work for the Louisiana SDCA I can say professional, a professional experience. Everyone loves to talk about their pets. Um, but yeah, you want to, again, it's about not talking to somebody like here, you're this task on my list and here, I'm just going to, you know, like word vomit all over this phone call until, you know, not let you get a word in edgewise until I've said my whole thing. Like, then I'm just waiting to hang up on you out of politeness. Like I don't, you know, what's the other person getting out of this? So, you say, "Here I am. I'm a candidate of Congress, and I'm running for this reason. And I'd love to know more about, like, what you need from your Congress member, or what you're looking for, or something like that. You need to ask them about who they are and what they care about, because then you can have a meaningful conversation. Um, so I think that part is is really important.
0: And you've said before that it's about letting them know why they're on your list Mm -hmm. what's the connection it was either it's either a person or a issue that has landed Mm -hmm. them on your list and is it an elevator pitch that you want to give early on or is that
1: yeah I think it 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 can depend which is um probably not a favorite answer but I think you have to be ready to spit out that elevator pitch that's part of what you're practicing when you're doing these things and having you know Knocking on doors, making phone calls. Because one, if you do get that voicemail, you want to leave the message. So you want to have a good message to leave, right? Um, and two, you know, some people are going to want to engage in that conversation and other people are going to want to hear from you first. So you really just need to, as much as humanly possible, take the lead from the person that you're trying to engage. So if that person, you know, like my advice is always to ask question first, because it gets, it does allow for them to engage and you're not like keeping someone on the phone for however long it takes you to spit out your elevator speech. And then they're like, I'm actually somewhere where I can't talk right now. And they're trying to be, you know, that happens. So, you know, making sure they have the opportunity to speak early on, but yes, you got to be ready to give that pitch because some people are going to ask you for it, or you're going to have a voicemail where you can leave it or, you know, a lot of other opportunities for that.
0: And then if they say no, Mm. they say either I can't speak or they say, I can't give you money right now. Mm -hmm. What's the response there?
1: Yeah, I think you have to be kind of equally as enthusiastic when you say, I appreciate your time. Then I appreciate a gift, right? Like, thank you or so sorry for interrupting your day. You know, hope to connect with you soon or something like that. Um, And then if they're saying, you know, they're not just saying, I can't speak right now. They're saying that you talk to them and they're saying, you know, I just can't donate right now, whatever's going on in their life. I can't can't do that. I could possibly do a smaller gift. Um, I think you, most times it's best to let them offer that. Um, and most times people are going to tell you more information about, you know, I just can't give right now. You're just trust your instincts on that. Like, what would you want someone to say to you? You just said that to them. Uh, but more importantly, in that moment, you can say, really understand you know they're supportive but can't donate. Well, thank you so much for your time and I I totally understand that and then just immediately pivot to you know we the campaign you know if you would consider volunteering and there's all these other ways in which people can help you and if if again depending on what that person has shared back with you at this point one of the best things that you can get out of a conversation like this either instead of or in addition to a, a a donation is I'd like to introduce you to my network of people. I'd like to have a coffee at my house. I'd like to invite you to my law firm to speak. I'd like to invite you to the organization I'm involved with. I'd like to, I mean, meet my, like three friends, like whatever it is, go get yourself in front of new faces and take that person up on their offer. Um, You know, I think you have to be a pretty elite candidate to be shutting anyone down from any kind of offer like that because they're going to do that once for you. Then they may do it again, and you can go to a lot of little coffees and meet and see what you you know see who you can meet. That kind of offer that I'm going to introduce you and take time to in, invite my friends, the people in my world, to you is a huge person. Like think about what that means that that person's doing that for you. Um, so that's something that should be very honored and definitely followed up on.
0: So no matter what if they give you money, they don't give you money. They offer you something else. Be polite. Yes. And remember that you're building a relationship It's a relationship that could lead to anything you don't know what yet exactly. How do you know how much to ask somebody for? Um,
1: that's going to be based on that research of looking at prior giving history um, and in the absence of that you either have some personal information you know somebody else who knows them or um, some other kind of you know they own a really successful business. So you're gonna try for a certain amount. And when you just don't know, uh, say take your successful business owner, but you can't tell, like you just really uncomfortable trying to put a number on it, call and make an ask, will you contribute? And then you've started a, a thing. They're gonna tell you what that amount is, And if you think that they could give more based on whatever it is you know about them, then you've got to build that relationship and earn it. Don't just keep asking, do something in between where you are building the relationship, learning about them. Because I think one of the reasons that we are always taught don't talk about money, which again is the right advice in a lot of other situations is that, it reflects on a lot of different personal things. Like they own this really great business but they've just invested and maybe it's not going well right now and they're really cash strapped and all these things. You don't want to put that person in a position where they're feeling like, oh, I can't give what you're asking. Um, So, you know, do your best research and in the absence of information to base that on, just do a soft ask and let that person tell you.
0: So one no is not necessarily the end of that yeah ask there may be a reason why they can't give today right
1: and in my experience people are if they're just saying no i'm not interested they're they're the ambitious part of me doesn't want to say this but they they're telling you that they're saying no i'm not interested most cases when people are saying i just can't give to that right now or i'm giving to so many things or you know, or I have already decided who I'm giving to right now, things like that, that's all of those things tell you something different. So that's where the, you know, what do you say, what happens if they say no becomes kind of hard, because you should really be basing that on how did they say no. Um, So if they're saying, I'm giving so many things right now, I can't, that's amazing. And thank you for contributing to, you know, other great candidates in our community or other great causes in our community. I'd love to get to know more about, you know, what it is that you are supporting. Because all right, we're going to go with our environmental example. Like I'm on these three boards. I'm giving all this stuff to these organizations. I'd love to get to know them better. I'd love to get to know the people who are working on these issues in our community. If you, you know, would want to host a coffee, blah, 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 something like that.
0: And I love that you say that initial no Mm -hmm. suggests that what you need to now go do is earn their support. Mm -hmm.
1: Right. Cause I mean, you can't assume that just because you, you know, have decided you share a common something or that you, you know, common interest or cause that you care about, or that they supported the candidate before you, you don't know, like they may have known the person's brother-in-law and that's why they were giving, you know, you can't just make these assumptions about people, because you have this nugget of information, they're a whole person.
0: Okay. Someone has donated to me now. Mm-hmm. How do I continue to grow that relationship?
1: Yeah. So you want to make sure that your you yourself as a candidate and then your finance team and, and your campaign staff have plans on how you're going to keep people updated and informed and how you're going to have the you yourself part, personal touch is back with that person. So, you know, we want to make sure that every contribution feels, every contributor feels appreciated. Everybody who's making the $5 and $10, they're getting their thank you notes, they're getting their thank you email confirmations and put some decent messaging in there. Do not just have like the auto receipt template, put something that means something in there and then make sure that they are enrolled in some sort of, you know, whatever however you're segmenting your digital communication that, you know, they're enrolled in something that's going to sell them something meaningful. And again, my experience being more on individual um, relationship-based fundraising. So someone's giving you a maximum contribution or a significant contribution. You want to make sure you're coming back to them and talking about the impact that made. Hey, you, by the way, gave this $1,000 gift just in time. And we were able to make this TV buy. And I want you to know, like, it's making these impressions. We moved in the polls this way or whatever. And then obviously on the development side, it's, or on the nonprofit side, I mean, it's different uh, impact kind of report, (laughs) but um, you were part of making the campaign successful this week in this way. Um, We have the opportunity to go do this now because you gave this gift.
0: Is that a personal call? Is that part of your call time? Yeah, it's a personal call. And it really... Um, When it comes to individual
1: fundraising and all the different steps that that takes, this isn't to be evasive. It really depends on the person because you want to individualize what you're doing as much as possible. So you get to know somebody and they start texting you, text them. You get to know somebody and they start calling you, call them. They're emailing you, email them. All these kinds of things. Like at a certain point, again, all of the skilled work and all this technical experience comes back around. Now you have them and they're talking to you as a person, talk back to them as a person, right? So um, I'm like, don't make sense in my generation at all, but I'm not like the biggest texter in the world, but there are certain donors in my work that like, they text me and I'm just like, oh, I gotta get back to them with that information. I will email myself to remind them to text them the information that they asked for. Like you figure out how to make it work, but you respond to people quickly quickly, quickly, quickly. Don't leave them hanging. People are busy. They're going to go move on to something else. Talk to them while they're thinking about you and your thing. And then also talk to them, um, in the way that they spoke to you, like come back to them through that same channel.
0: And look, that's something we do in organizing also. Mm -hmm. There are some people who I will only ever get a reply if I message them on Facebook or if I message them by text or, yeah. And then, uh, we've talked about handwritten thank you notes. And Mm -hmm. I guess, those sometimes can be very meaningful to people. When Hillary Clinton sent me a, a thank you postcard, that was very yeah, meaningful, right? Exactly. And I think um, you find
1: this is the stuff where it almost starts to sound silly about like which stationery you're buying and how big it is. Like I have at different times in different for different roles, different things had like different purposefully selected like different size stationery because like I'm like, every time I write these I need to be able to say all of these things. So like, give me the space. And then I have a lot of these that I wanna do quickly. Uh, like with Planned Parenthood, there were a number of of um, more mature women who were d- donating to Planned Parenthood who are really the type who really appreciate a handwritten thank you note. And I literally got some like smaller stuff. So I didn't feel like I had to fill in everything cause I was writing them way more frequently, things like that have your tricks, have your little life hacks for making the work of communicating with people easy and efficient for you because you need to do a lot of it. So these, these little things will sound silly and they'll be like a hundred people listen to that statement. Maybe there are two other people who are like, Oh my God, I've done that too. Cause they, that wasn't their issue. Right. Just figure out what it is. It's taking your time to communicate with people in an effective way and make it efficient.
0: And look, I think it's really much more meaningful for me. If I get a uh, Hand signed mm-hmm. postcard, then a full piece of paper typed, yeah, yes, yeah, absolutely. I think,
1: and we talked about this before, it's all about if if I'm me, or I'm the recipient of this, whatever it is that you're doing, do I think that I just sat down and put my own personal thought into this, or did somebody shove a bunch of letters in front of me and I just signed my name on them, you know um, and so it, you know, it depends. That's still the right answer for a certain kind of gift. You know, um, every gift is appreciated, but you can't do these kinds of things for every $5 gift you get. So if you're hand signed $5 gift, thank you note, you're way ahead of game.
0: <laughs> or spending your time on the wrong thing, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can a campaign do without big dollar donations or, or can they survive only on grassroots donations? I personally think you
1: got to push all your levers. Um, so you want to go to a, make sure you have the best digital strategy, mail strategy and individual strategy to say that you are not going to do big dollar fundraising to try to find maximum gifts for the campaign. You're leaving, you're leaving resources on the table, big dollar donations. Like every other channel you want to make sure you're, you're securing all of the funding for your campaign that you can. Um, cause you know, you may have a bad week next week. You may, you know, there may be something that comes up in the news cycle where, you know, you're gonna lose all the momentum you're building or whatever So if you're, you're moving forward and
0: you're able
1: to secure support for your campaign, you have to be trying to do that through every channel you can get your hands on.
0: Part of why I would advocate for taking big dollar donations is it's, frankly, it's just a numbers game and you have to get money from where you can get it. So whether or not you're a nonprofit or a political campaign, getting those big dollars banked, and particularly banked early, Mm -hmm. is really important towards meeting your goals and being able to determine what you can budget for. Yeah, So that's really important. I think the reason why I asked that question and why progressives and Democrats in particular worry about it is because they think big dollar donors are buying influence with politicians and with their money. So what are your thoughts on that? I think it's something that people should
1: definitely be mindful of and keeping their eye on because of course there's the possibility that something, somebody will come along and try to influence and try to influence a candidate to do something that's you know, good for them, but not for the public. That's absolutely something everybody has to be mindful of and, um, and be on the lookout for, I guess. But the truth is, I think one of the things that people conflate is influence and access. Um, and you're talking about in our example of, um, our, let's say our environmental candidate for Congress gets elected and has been, this person's been in office a couple of terms and they've worked with this, you know, environmental board member for years on building out things. They're trying to accomplish something that is for the public good, but they've also built a relationship as like, you know, they've been working together now, say like six years. And this person has helped Find new supporters for them, hosted events or and, and whatnot. But also these organizations that he's working with are, you know, helping develop good policy that he can try to implement. Whatever. I'm, I'm constructing this as a hypothetical. Um what, you know, what's necessarily bad about that? You're trying, you, what you want to be on the lookout for is if somebody is being influenced to do something that is against is not for the public good, right? So if you have somebody who is they're working together on something that they share a common cause and goal, they're gonna build a relationship. So yes, of course, that person is gonna have more access, they're gonna be able to get them on the phone, they're gonna be, they're gonna have more FaceTime with them as they worked on these things over the course of the year. And so I think when people look at so and so is a buddy with this person, that's not necessarily the bright barometer for whether or not influence is happening. Um, it's not that we shouldn't all have, you know, a skeptical eye about things. That's important. Um, but what you really want to be looking for is, did this person just start advocating the opposite way for something, or did they just start advocating that something's going to happen in my community that's terrible for my community, you know, be aware on the policy front, because that's where that's going to show itself.
0: And I think the continued access is what you've been preaching all along, is that right. you're building a relationship. You just said it again, but mm-hmm. every answer almost has had that in there. It's building a relationship, <laughs> right? So if your first interaction with someone, that cold call where they wind up mm-hmm. on your list is the beginning of building a relationship, that's not gonna end when the campaign ends.
1: No, cause hopefully, you know, you decide not to run again as a member of Congress. You genuinely care about the environment. Very unlikely you're just going to stop worrying, you know, wanting to work on that. So you're even outside of your possibly, you know, outside of your elected life, you're gonna, um, you're gonna want to keep working with these people. These are we're all this is going to sound very lofty, but like the candidate for Congress, the donor, the campaign staff, these are all full people. So they don't just stop being people when they leave one environment or the other. Um, but again, that's not to downplay how destructive bad influence can be. Right. So we want to be mindful of those kinds of things. And I would say being aware of donor relationships is helpful, but mostly you're going to find the proof is in the putting on a policy end.
0: My caveat here, Amelie, is that I would love to get money out of politics, Mm -hmm. but as long as it's there, you can't have one side disarm while the other side is playing with all yes, their weapons.
1: that be, i mean i talked about coming in to work for the democratic house Tank campaign committee in january whatever 2011 this is right after the tea party wave this is after a whole election cycle saying we're not going to super pack that that's what that's how 2010 happened um you know you have people who are including Speaker Pelosi, who are huge leaders of the Democratic Party, who did, wanted nothing to do with super PACs and they didn't do it and they lost the house. And so to your point, honestly, I think we'd all like to see money out of politics, all of us, and myself included. And I did this job for better part of a decade, I, or better, better part of half a decade, I'm not that old. Um, but the, um, but the, the, while it is there and while we're in this environment, I think people may not have a full understanding of what it means to just be like, oh, we're going to throw this away, and we're not going to do this when you're you're competing for something. You're not doing any making any of those decisions in a vacuum. Now, we've seen different candidates say, I'm not going to take any PAC money and do very well. And so I think we can look at those campaigns and the dynamics around those campaigns, because of course, the particular candidate is going to be important but try to find a couple of these campaigns that have done that well, look at the commonalities between them and see like, how can we try to make sure that, you know, big organized influence is, can be muted a, a bit. But at the end of the day, we have to play on the same play field.
0: Right. Should a finance director understand compliance? Yes.
1: Um, I think when we actually we talked about this before so should that just be the lawyers who know that or should the finance director? And I'm just repeating this because I thought it was uh, a funny back and forth, but as a kid of two lawyers, lawyers are important. And so everyone's campaign should have a, some actual attorney that they can refer to, but yeah, your finance staff is there day to day. You need to, as a finance staffer, as a fundraiser, know what is lawful, what's unlawful and what is ethical and unethical, and those are two different things, right? You can be fine by the letter of the law, but not fine. Um, So know not only what the rule is, but why the rule is in place so that you can help try to achieve that. Um, You know, I think we we miss a lot of things that got ripped out of McCain Feingold. (laughs) Definitely dating myself on that reference, but uh, the, you know, I mean, what was, what that bill in itself, attempted to achieve and achieve, and did for many years in many ways, not completely, not holistically, was it achieved having financial disclosure that these things are public, more public disclosure than much more public disclosure than it happened before. And it got corporate donations out. So the super PAC thing is really, ha- or yeah, is how corporate money came back into politics. Citizens so that United, bill, that's yeah, that bill is Citizens United. It's became fine gold till Citizens United corporate entities could not give, you know, their ownership could give, their boards could give, and and they were all limited by those individual limits. But even after Citizens United, there were other decisions that blew up uh, restrictions. So everyone should care about finance reform.
0: Yes. Before we move to the final three questions, Mm -hmm. what makes a great fundraiser?
1: I think to be good at fundraising, you have to be a couple of different things. And the first of which is passionate about whatever you're fundraising about. Fundraising work, um, you know, there's events involved. And in a lot of these examples, I get to talk about meeting really cool people and, you know, all these elected officials. So sometimes I think people look at it and think, you know, oh, that's just some thing for ladies who lunch. It's hard work. but, so you have to be passionate, you have to be passionate to go out and introduce yourself to blind strangers and try to get them engaged in your thing. That's absolutely true for field work too, right? You're not going to go knock on doors in the middle of the rain if you don't care about what's there, right? So similarly there. And I think you also have to be, um, you have to be strategic. And you have to really, especially on the political side, I think your time management, how are you going to get to your goal what are you going to spend your time on? I could spend hours researching this one prospect and know all these things about them. And then that's one phone call and one relationship and one donation we can make, right? Like you have to figure out, that's where all that technical skill things come through. Like there are people who on the nonprofit side of life who are full-time prospect researchers and they themselves have like timers that they sit on their desk being like, this is how much time I'm going to spend researching this person because they need to know they're getting through the volume of their work. So specifically for campaign fundraising, it's the discipline of how you're going to execute your plan, sticking to it, reviewing your plan and updating it, like just constantly going through that cycle. And then I guess more on the personality side again, it's you just have to, you develop a a good, no no isn't a negative, right? Like, or, you know, no isn't just this terrible answer someone can give you. It's a no. I move on. It's a no, but there's something else we can talk about here. One of those two things, and you just have to keep going. So you, you build up, um, you build that kind of thing up though with time. So you got to be patient with yourself too. Okay.
0: So last three questions I ask (laughs) every episode, Amelie, what's the biggest obstacle for progressives in Louisiana?
1: So I think uh, it's, can be hard not to feel defeated um having worked for Planned Parenthood in Louisiana <laughs> it can be hard not to feel defeated but I think um what I shared uh earlier was there in the last legislative session I was listening to the news or just read up upon you know whatever it was that they had passed or refused to pass and I ran into Anita zurbogon Hakes, who should also get shout outs from everyone all the time, all over the place. Um, and I was saying, oh, my goodness, can't believe all the things you're doing because she was talking about having just been in Baton Rouge. And she was like, no. And I this is terrible. Both times I've forgotten what the specific thing was, but that she was talking about. But there are two there were small victories, like something got out of committee and something else got Uh, further along than it had in previous sessions they weren't wholesale victories right they were part of the longer journey longer battle of victories like we are moving some needles here we convinced some people that we couldn't convince before and I was so glad I ran into her that moment and she said all she said all those things because it just reminded me that you know you can't expect to go out and win these win these incredibly important battles and incredibly important goals in one fell swoop that like big change of turning for this state in progressive work It's going to take time and it takes that resilience. So it's hard not to feel defeated, but you got to keep focusing on those little victories.
0: What's the biggest opportunity for progressives?
1: I think, um, it's connecting kind of the bubbles we have across the state. So again, actually when I was working with Plain Parenthood, um, we have, uh, Plain Parenthood has health centers in uh, in Baton Rouge and New Orleans. And also just to note, every time I start talking about the place I used to work, I still say we, like <laughs> there. And I actually kind of love that, but Plain Parenthood has those two health centers in Louisiana and so it's so a back and forth between those. And I always considered myself, you know, somebody who really likes, wants to, pay attention and be involved in you know what's going on politically or or civically engaged right in my community and I had no idea all these people I met in Baton Rouge all these different organizations I may have been vaguely aware of the name their names or the names of the different groups but all the things they were doing again like you know it kind of felt almost like you should have known this because I stopped and thought about the the work I did for the D trip, popping in and out of cities all over the place, knowing like people are trying and doing and accomplishing incredible things all over. And so being able to see between Baton Rouge, we got to know some folks up in in Shreveport as well. There are a lot of people doing a lot of work and we're not as well connected as we could be. And I think that is, uh, there's a lot of potential for, for the work, but even just on its, if it could only accomplish this one thing it'd be worth it, it empowers us. It reminds us that we're not just, just this blue dot in New Orleans. And then, yeah, maybe there's some people out there doing some things as a lifelong, as a born and raised New Orleanian, we do that. Um, (laughs) That, you know, you gotta make sure you're connecting with other people and seeing what's working for them. Could you try it there? And how do we connect and how you kind of try to leverage, the power of the supporters that we have for this kind of work and these kind of policies across the state.
0: Amalie, who's your favorite superhero?
1: It's Wonder Woman. Uh, it might be kind of a predictable answer, but it's definitely Wonder Woman. She's amazing.
0: Well, I love that. She is a fan favorite on there we go. Louisiana Lefty. She's gotten name-checked many times on the <laughs> podcast. Thank you so much for taking your time. First of all, thank you for joining me multiple times to get this podcast (laughs) accomplished. I really appreciate it. But very much appreciate your sharing your expertise on this. I think it's something we really need to train more Louisiana Democrats on. So really appreciate your time and your knowledge. You bet. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Louisiana Lefty. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you to Ben Collinsworth for producing Louisiana Lefty. Gen Pack of Black Cat Studios for our Super Lefty Artwork, and $1,000 Car for allowing us to use their Swamp Pop Classic Security Guard as our Louisiana Lefty theme song.